war, politics, social unrest, economic uncertainty, international conflicts, climate change. What is the significance of these current events? Where are we heading? Pastor Gary Webster shares answers from the Bible, giving you hope and certainty in the times ahead. Welcome to Countdown, Back to the Future. This episode is entitled, Why So Many Denominations? The Search for Truth. All right, let's begin with prayer again, shall we? Father in heaven, we ask that your Holy Spirit will help us now. We want to see what great things you've been doing down through the ages through people. And Lord, also you bring us down to our own time and what we should do today. So may the Holy Spirit blow in this place like the wind and please burn in us like a fire. Uh, Convict us, Father. We need the power of the Spirit of God to change our lives. Jesus is coming soon, so be here now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You know, there are over 1,000 Christian denominations. If you go to the internet, sometimes you see there's 40,000. Well, that's because you have some groups that they're all they're autonomous, like a Baptist here and a Baptist group here, but they really believe the same, but they're separate entities. But really, in reality, there are 1,000 Christian denominations. That's a lot of denominations, isn't it? Incredible lot. Now, does God actually have a church today? This is a very important question that many people also wonder about. In fact, does it really matter? That's another good question, isn't it? Does it really matter that much? And anyway, don't all roads lead to heaven? It isn't just different roads for different folks. Isn't that what it's all about? Another good question. So why are there so many denominations? We want to track that down. And we're going to see what God has been doing down through the centuries. Now, let's begin with the church in the Bible. First of all, the Bible says very clearly that there was one organized New Testament church. Sometimes I meet people who say, well, look, church doesn't matter. Now, this is my friends. Church does matter because if we're going to follow the Bible in the New Testament, there was a church. And it was very organized. For example, Jesus was the first one to organize it. He appointed apostles. Then they appointed deacons and elders. They had a church council in Jerusalem. We cannot escape uh, when we read the Bible that there is an organized church that Jesus set up for a very good purpose to save the world. So this is not an option. No, there, there was a New Testament church. Notice the Bible says one body or church. The church is called the body of Christ. One hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So there was one organized Christian church back in the days of the apostles and Jesus. There was one belief system in the New Testament church. They believed the same thing in terms of the key uh, teachings of Jesus. Notice one body or church one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Now, faith doesn't just mean trust in Jesus. We even use it today. What faith do you belong to? We mean, what, what beliefs do you ascribe to? What, do you, what, 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 what beliefs do you have? 
So they use that there. Notice, Jude says, earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Number three, God's plan is one united church. It's not God's ideal that we have a thousand different denominations. He's going to have somehow work through all that, but his plan is one church. That they may be one, pray Jesus, as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That would be wonderful, wouldn't it? In fact, Paul in his book to the Corinthians says that there should be no schism or division in the body or the church. So it's never been God's ideal to have a whole bunch of different denominations. Last principle, and that was the Bible predicted that there would be a departure from New Testament truth. They didn't catch God by surprise when things went wrong. In fact, Paul warned of it. Now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit expressly teaches that in the latter times, in the days to come, some shall depart from the faith. But what will they be doing? Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So God could see there would be a departure from the faith. We could show a number of texts on that. But let's now go to University History of Christianity and we're going to see how that took place, this departure, and then what God's doing to try to bring things back to where they once were. Remember, Constantine was the first Christian emperor in the Roman Empire. 313 AD, things start to change. Now, pagan beliefs entered the Christian church at that point like a flood. They had already begun, but now they flooded into the church as Constantine became a Christian, if you like, or embraced the Christian religion. Why? Because he really did this for a political move. He could see that Christianity, even though it was being persecuted, was growing like mushrooms. And so basically he said, if you can't beat them, join them. So the best way to do it is to take the Christian religion, but... He's going to use it for his ends. And there will be some compromise that the Christians had to make. And very quickly, the Christian church fell away from truth. And I want to share, see, show you how that happens. First of all, one of the very first things that Constantine worked on and the church had already started was that Sunday would become the key day of worship for the Christian church. 321 AD, first day worship. 381 AD, Worship of Mary is introduced. Mary was not always worshipped. It comes later. Infant baptism starts in 416 AD. We start that process. 783 AD, the worship of images and saints starts to take off in the Christian church. They didn't used to do that. We go on a little further. The 1100s AD, baptism by immersion ceases. We saw that last weekend. So that stops. It starts with... Infants earlier on, but by the time we get to 100 AD, infant bapti immersion baptism ceases. Celibacy of the priests, 1123 AD. You can see a long time has gone. It's rather strange because Peter had a wife. You know that, don't you? St. Peter, the great apostle Peter, he had a wife. Tells us that very clearly. But sadly, by the time we get to 1123 AD, we have celibacy of the priests. And we wonder why we have so much problems today because priests are supposed to be celibate. Well, 
you can see, sadly, what takes place. 1215 AD, confession to priests begins. This starts to come into the Christian church because the real priest, the Bible says, is Jesus. Remember, there's one God and one mediator between God and human beings, the man Christ Jesus. 1229 AD, Bible reading is forbidden. You wouldn't believe that today, would we? But you were forbidden to read the Bible way back then, 1229 AD. By the time we come to 1545 AD and the Council of Trent, church tradition is placed above the Bible. By the way, in that council, it's fascinating to see why they eventually said tradition is above the Bible, because there was a big argument about this in the Christian church, in the Church of Rome back in this time. Finally, one bishop got up and he said, now listen here, basically, let's solve this once and for all. He said, which day of the week do we worship on? Well, Sunday. He said, well, which day does the Bible say we should worship on? Sabbath. Okay, well, it's pretty plain, isn't it? That tradition is above the Bible. So therefore, the church accepted tradition and, and moved on and did not accept the Reformation based on that bit of logic over the Sabbath. Now, it was illogic, but <laughs> that's the way they argued at that time. Sadly, wasn't it? It, it? it came up over the Sabbath to show that tradition is above the Bible because the Bible has a different viewpoint. Now, very few New Testament Christian beliefs actually remain in the church. Not very many really remained as time went on. One, one, one did, and I like this, all authority, Jesus said, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Make disciples baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. But they have one name, Jehovah. Jesus is God Almighty. The Holy Spirit is God Almighty. The Father is God Almighty. Somehow they are mysteriously one, but that's the way the Bible puts it together. And I'm glad the Church of Rome held that belief. And that's what I like about the Church of Rome. That belief is still Important that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are God. Now the Bishop of Rome receives political power from Justinian, we've seen, in 538 AD. Now we see some things start to change, sadly. The Dark Ages begin in history, we call this the Dark Ages. Calls for reform in the church began from godly priests and godly bishops and nuns and other people in the church the church come back to the Bible we're straying so far from scripture aren't you glad for godly priests and bishops who held to the scriptures and called the church back it took courage for these people to do that and they lost their lives over it many of them many of them were persecuted and burnt at the stake by the church itself the Bible during this time was banned burned forbidden to be translated into the languages of the people for very good reasons, because if the people read the Bible in their own languages, they would see the church was straying. So it's written in Latin and Greek, and only the priests can understand it. The Bible puts it this way. The dragon persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Very sad, wasn't it? Notice what the Bible says. Then the woman 
fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God that they should feed her there 1,260 days. God would still look after the truth. It would be hidden away, but he would preserve it somehow, some shape, some form. But the next 1,260 days or years, one prophetic day represents one literal year, you remember. So 1,260 year, literal years. This period of persecution begins in the Christian church and it's terrible. You just need to read some of the history books at university and you'll see what went on. Uh, terrible things that went on by the church against the people who wanted to follow the Bible. And so the dark ages was in operation. Went on so long. But finally someone lit a match. He was a priest in the church of Rome by the name of Martin Luther. He loved his church and he loved his God. And eventually, as he studied the Bible, he came across two great teachings. Number one, the Bible alone is the rule of faith and practice. Everything must be subject to God's word. It is the final authority, not bishops, not popes, not the church, but the Bible. This is the authority for the Christian. Texts like this, all scripture is inspired by God. What a great text that we find in the Bible. As Luther studied the beautiful teachings of the Bible, he came across this one. Oh, we'll come to that one in a minute. To the law and to the testimony, to the scriptures. If they don't speak according to this word, it's because there's no light in them. Luther discovered as he studies the Bible, grace alone is what saves us. We must come to God just as we are and come and say, God, I need your help. I'm a sinner. I need Jesus. Grace alone plus nothing. For by grace have you been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. We talked about that. How much does a gift cost? Zero. <laughs> a gift is free. Just reach out your hand and take it. Not of works, not of human effort, so that no one can boast. When Luther read those words, man, suddenly a light turned on in Europe. And that's, he began the Lutheran church. He didn't want to leave the church, but basically he was pushed out. He was going to be killed if he stayed. And eventually the Lutheran church is born with these two great teachings Originally, the Bible alone and grace alone. And that's what I like about our Lutheran friends, our Lutheran church people. I love those things that they brought to the attention of the world. But there was more light yet to break out of God's word. More light was to come back. You think they had been in darkness for centuries. And if you ever go into a cave, I've been into a cave in New Zealand, man. When you come out, the light is blinding, isn't it? So God just brings a little bit at a time, one at a time. So I love this text. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter till the full light of day. God shines truth on our pathway. As we accept it, he'll send more and more and more, the more we follow. So God raises another instrument to bring more truth back to the church. He's a Roman Catholic priest too, John Calvin. He's living in France. Persecution breaks out in France. He has to flee France. He's a godly priest. He runs to Geneva and John Calvin, as he studies the Bible, he discovers the sovereignty of God, that God is in ultimate control. 
texts like this, or we know that all things work together for good, bad stuff's happening to you, and you think this is not from God? Yes, well, it probably is not. It's not from God, bad stuff, but God has allowed it. He could have shut it down, but he knows this is for good and he'll bring good out of it. It's not a good thing and God didn't cause all these bad things. Of course he didn't. But the Bible says we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. If you put your hand in the hand of God and you're going through bad stuff, rest assured on this promise, God will get you through and he will bring good out of it. That is true. I've seen it in our own lives. God will bring good if we trust to those who are the called according to his purpose. John Calvin discovered another grand truth, the security and assurance of salvation in Jesus. Texts like this, he, she who has the son has life. These things I have written that you may know, not that you may hope, but that you may know that you have eternal life. What a beautiful teaching to know. I hope you know that today yourself, that should I die tonight, should Jesus come, I'm ready to meet Almighty God. I'm safe in the arms of Jesus, <laughs> secure in him. Why? Not because of what I've done, but because he, she who has the Son, has life. Wow, what a great teaching. Thank God. John Calvin, the Reformed churches began under Calvin. The sovereignty of God, the security and assurance of salvation in Christ. And that's what I like about our Reformed friends, Presbyterian and Reformed churches. They brought those teachings back. But there was more light yet to come out of God's book, God's word to his church. See, actually, what, what takes place is something like this. People accept Luther's teachings, but they won't accept the next guy's teachings, only as far as Luther goes. So God calls up another instrument to bring more truth back. People accept that teaching, but they won't go beyond their, the, the person who brought it. So God raises another instrument. Well, John Smith was an Anglican. He left England for Holland in 1607. While he was in Holland, he discovered that we should baptize by immersion just as Jesus was and Jesus did. And so he set up the first Baptist churches in 1612 based on texts like this buried with him in baptism in which you also were raised with him through your faith in the working or the power of God who raised him from the dead. So the Baptist churches came into existence thanks to John Smith and others. Believers baptism by immersion. And so the Baptist churches were born. And that's what I like about our Baptist friends. They brought that teaching back to the church it had been lost for centuries but sadly people would no, go no further again so God raises up another instrument more light yet to come back bring us back to the New Testament times and teachings I should say the Anglican church had become very formal by the early 1700s yeah, very formal indeed in, in fact uh, it was sort of so formal was it that they told their preachers what to preach because <laughs> you don't want to hear what you don't want to hear. So that was one of the ways they did it. Very formal indeed. John Wesley is an Anglican priest. He goes to America to convert the Indians. He came back a failure and he said, 
Who will convert John Wesley? He met some Moravians, people from the, 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 the forefathers were Moravians from Czechoslovakia or Bohemia as it's called. And these people loved Christ with a passion. They knew Jesus as their friend. They knew him personally. They had a peace of mind. They had a hope for the future. And Wesley was attracted to them. And they tried to help Wesley become a Christian. Wesley was given an assignment to take a man or go with a man to the gallows. So he hops up in this buggy with him and he, and, he, and he tells this man how he can be ready for Jesus to come. He's a crook, he's a thief, this guy. And the man accepts Jesus like the thief on the cross. And Wesley said, I led him to salvation, but who will lead me to salvation? Because he still didn't know Jesus. He's in a meeting one day in Aldersgate Street in London. He's sitting up the back and his Moravian friends are speaking. And he said, as they read from the writings of the apostle Paul and the grace of God, and how good God is to accept us as we are. He said, my heart was strangely warm within me and I knew God had forgiven me, even me, my sins. Wesley got up out of that meeting hall, jumped on his horse and rode for over 240,000 miles to tell people about Jesus. That's to the moon. It's a long ways, isn't it, on a horse? Living like Christ. This is what Wesley brought back to the church. His life in us. Texts like this, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Wow, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What a grand thing Wesley brought back to the church. And so the Methodist churches began there in England, living like Christ because his life is in us by faith. And that's what I love about our Methodist and our Wesleyan friends. Their church brought back these teachings to the attention of the Christian world. You see what's happening. Truth is being restored one step at a time. God is bringing back teachings that have been lost for centuries to the Christian church, bringing them back to what the apostles believed. There goes into that dark age tunnel in 538 AD, one church, the Church of Rome. By the time we exit this dark age tunnel, 1260 years later, in 1798, we have a multitude of churches. And that's just a little idea how some of them began. God was doing his work through time to bring truth back. Each group has some Bible truth. But no group has all Bible truth. So God is doing an amazing thing. Then we come to the end of the 1260 years. Remember, we saw this last evening. We'll review just a little bit. We get to the end of the 1260 years, 1798. You recall that last night. That begins, we saw last night, what the Bible calls the time of the end. Not the end of time, but the time in which the end will come. And this enters this time period now. You will recall that at this very time, the Bible predicted in Daniel's book, he predicted that when we get to that time, that year, the end of the 1260 years, which ends in 1798, people will start to especially study the book of Daniel, especially the 2300 day prophecy. And that's exactly what happened in 1798, we saw, when the Pope was taken prisoner by General Berthier, people began to look at the sealed part of Daniel's book 
The time of the end had come. And you'll recall, 1798, that's exactly what happened. Daniel was unsealed. People of different denominations began to examine the great time prophecy of the 2,300 years. One of the first we saw last night was a Roman Catholic Jesuit priest, Manuel de la Cunza. And he began to teach people from the Bible that Jesus was going to come. Others of different faiths taught the same thing. Many denominations began to study the 2,300 days. We even showed you a book which documents all this of many different people in Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Anglican, you name it, different people studying the Bible at the same time without the benefit of an iPhone to connect with each other by a long shot. 1844, they all came to the same conviction. Something's going to happen in 1843, 1844. They said this is the end point of the 2,300 years, all of them. Something's going to happen. Some of them didn't know what was going to happen. They never said what. They just said something. Others said, no, no, Jesus is going to come. Remember, we saw this guy, William Miller, a Baptist farmer. He has a following we saw of 500,000 people, different religions, all believing the same thing there in North America, Baptist, Methodist, Presbyterian. Jesus doesn't come on October 22, 1844. And we saw they experienced what we call the great disappointment. Disappointed because Jesus didn't show up. And as we said last night, don't be too hard on these people. Because if you're a Christian, you would want Jesus to come, right? Absolutely. Because if we, if we believe Jesus died for us personally, who would not want Jesus to come again? And the last page of the Bible, even so come, Lord Jesus, even so come. Well, an interdenominational group, remember, these were people of different faiths. They are gathering together. They're asking the question, why did he not come? What went wrong? How come he never showed up? You'll recall that these people started to look at the part of the prophecy that William Miller had, 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 had taught wrongly. They looked at the cleansing of the sanctuary. Miller had taught that the sanctuary is the earth. And the earth is cleansed. That means it must be cleansed with fire. That happens when Jesus comes. Well, of course, that's not the case. They started to look. What does the cleansing of the sanctuary mean? And you recall last night we saw that they realized that meant that the judgment began in 1844. We took a whole program last night and a previous one that helped us put that together. So they said the judgment began in 1844. We're living in the time Borrow time. This is not playtime. This is serious time. While the world's partying on and carrying on, there's a judgment going on. Hey, this is serious, they saw. Remember, they're an interdenominational group. So they're studying the Bible together. And you can imagine as they're talking and, and, and working together, they have different beliefs. Someone says, hey, don't you know baptisms by immersion? No, we baptized by sprinkling. Well, what does the Bible say? Well, the Bible says we ought to be buried. And so they accept that teaching. Someone says, don't you know that death is asleep? That we rest till Jesus comes and wakes us up? No, I thought when you, go to, you die, you go straight to heaven or hell. Well, no. Ah, they realize from the Bible. Don't you know that the seventh day Sabbath, these were all first day keepers, most of them. Someone says, don't you know that the Bible teaches the seventh day is the Sabbath? And so little by little, these people bring these teachings together. And so eventually the Seventh-day Adventist church is born out of that. 
people from different denominations bringing their truths together in a sense. Now, there are over 1,000 Christian denominations in the world today. So does God have a church today? And also, remember, Jesus said there will be one flock and one shepherd. That's his goal. That's his aim. So it should be, shouldn't it? So how do we know? Remember, one body, one church, one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. God's end time church in the last days is called the remnant. Let's go to the Bible and see that. God does have a church in the end of time, but it's called the remnant. John says, the dragon was angry with the woman and he went to make war with the remnant of her seed. What does that mean? Remnant of her seed. Well, remember, the seed in this chapter, chapter 12, is that baby that she's carrying, who is Jesus. So it's the remnant of Jesus. But what does that mean? When Paul was on the road to Damascus, Jesus cried out to Paul. He said, Paul, Paul, why do you persecute me? Paul could say, I'm not persecuting you, Jesus. Yes, you are. You're persecuting my church. That's my body. So when, it's, when it says persecuting Jesus, it's the church, you see. So it's, we can read it this way. The remnant of Jesus is the remnant of his body or his church. In other words, it's the remnant church of Bible prophecy. That's what John is telling us. The dragon goes to make war with the remnant of her seed, meaning the remnant church of Jesus of prophecy there. So which church among the whole thousand is God's remnant people in the end of time? Do we need to go to every one of the churches to try to find out? Take you a while, wouldn't it? God gives us very simple way to know. Over 1,000 Christian denominations. Here's how we can know. John, in Revelation, gives us five clear identifying principles or, or characteristics so that we can all know where and what we should do. Number one, notice number one, it keeps God's commandments, says John. He says, the dragon went to make war with the remnant of her seed who keep the commandments of God. So with those 1,000 different denominations, you can immediately say which one of those, which ones keep all the commandments, which would include what? Would include the Sabbath. Because the commandments he's talking about are God's 10 commandments, and one of them is number four. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So immediately you will, you will say, well, God has his children in many of those, but that's not the remnant because the remnant will be keeping the Sabbath. So you whittle the number down by to about 5% now left. So it's very easy. You see, God is making it easy. Do they keep the commandments of God, including the Sabbath? Number two, does this group of people that I'm examining have the faith of Jesus? What does that mean? Well, first of all, here it is. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and they have the faith of Jesus. That's the other thing. So what's that mean? Well, it means, first of all, faith in Jesus. Faith in Jesus for forgiveness. These people must believe that we're forgiven just by putting our trust and claiming Christ and saying, Jesus, take my stuff, my sins. Number two, 
faith in Jesus for salvation because when we're forgiven or right with God, we, the Bible says that's how we're saved because we're right with God. And then a new life. It all comes through faith in Jesus. So do they teach that? Then the and victory over sin. There are some people who think doesn't matter what you do. Just claim Jesus. No, the Bible says when we have Jesus, we have a life of power, of victory. God can give us that dynamite power so that the drunkard gives up his drink. The impure pure person becomes pure. The liar becomes honest and so on. God gives us a new power in our life. But it also means the teachings or the doctrines of Jesus. That's what the faith of Jesus also includes. Because the Bible says that we have the faith that was once delivered to God's saints, we read. What's the faith or teachings that Jesus held? Well, number one, he believed in baptism by immersion. He was baptized by immersion. Number two, he believed death was asleep. That's what he taught when he raised Lazarus to life. He didn't believe we'd go straight to heaven or to hell. He said we're sleeping. Number three, he taught a visible return, not a secret rapture. Many people today teach a secret rapture. No, Jesus said, I'm coming like the lightning, remember. Number three, four, Jesus believed and kept the seventh day Sabbath. That was obvious. Jesus believed in healthful living. In fact, he said, my body is God's temple myself. And he went about healing people. He believed in these principles. Number three, God's remnant people must proclaim the three angels' messages. Notice what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 10, we went there last night. After the disappointment, remember what God said? He said to me, you must prophesy again to many peoples, nations, tongues and kings. What would they prophesy again? The first angel's message says, let's go back. It says the hour of God's judgment has come. It's begun. The second angel says Babylon has fallen. He's joined by that fourth one. Which, Come out, my people. The third angel is don't receive the mark of the beast. So you ask, is this group teaching the three angels message? If it's not, maybe God's people there, but this is not the remnant. Number four, this must be a global movement. Why? Because the Bible says it has the everlasting gospel to proclaim to every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every person. This must be a global movement, not something in the corner here, something on its own. No, it's a global movement. Number five, it must emerge after 1798. We just saw that. Why? The woman fled into the wilderness that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And what comes out after that time? The dragon was angry with the woman and went to make war with the remnant. It emerges after that time. So that remnant we saw last evening is a prophetic end time movement of God. It's, 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 it's called into being. It's predicted by Daniel. It's predicted by John. It comes together not through human beings, not through someone getting their nose out of joint so they start a new group up. No, it's God's movement and it's an interdenominational movement that it begins with. This is the way God sees it. So here are the five identifying characteristics or features. One, it must keep all of God's commandments, including the Sabbath. It must have the faith of Jesus. It must proclaim the three angels' messages. 
It must be a global movement, and it must emerge after this 1798, according to the Bible. So which is God's remnant church today? How would we know? I want to come with you to, you to come with me, to Nablus. Nablus is in uh, the place where the Bible, where the Samaritans live. You may remember the Samaritans and the Jews were not exactly good friends. Uh, they hated each other. And Jesus came probably to this very spot. Certainly that where I'm sitting was not like it was in his day, but this is the well, it's believed, from Jacob's well, where Jesus sat and talked with a woman at this well on a long ago time. And as Jesus talked with this woman, I want you to notice what he said to this lady at the well. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, both. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. Imagine if you were that woman at that well that day, and Jesus said, we know what we do, but you guys don't. <laughs> what do you think? Jesus is being arrogant? Well, of course not. Jesus was never arrogant, but it sounds a little bit like it, doesn't it? No, Jesus, you can almost hear him saying it. We worship what we know, but you're not worshipping what you don't worship as you should. Jesus loved this woman and he wanted her to know the truth. And what Jesus was uttering was not arrogance, but the truth, because salvation did come from the Jews. It didn't mean that the Jews were the only ones that would be saved. It didn't mean that all the Jews would be saved, but it did mean that through the Jews came the truth and came the Messiah. So Jesus said that. So he wasn't being arrogant. Now, what I'm going to say in a moment may sound to some of you a little bit arrogant, but I want to say, my friends, I'm saying this just because this is the way God says it in his book when we examine those features. Which is God's remnant church? There's only one church that fits all those five criteria when you examine it for yourself. Only one church. And that, I believe, is the Seventh-day Adventist church. It began as an interdenominational movement. That's how God started. Collecting the truths from different groups which God had brought to the attention of the church. It does keep God's commandments, including his Seventh-day Sabbath. It does have believe in the faith of Jesus. You've heard night after night, day after day, we've talked about how we can have forgiveness and salvation and new birth and new life and new power through one source and one source only, and that's through our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, plus nothing. That's how it is. We have talked about the faith or the teachings of Jesus. We mentioned baptism by immersion last the other evening. Death as a sleep until Jesus comes. His visible return, we talked about that. We mentioned, of course, the seventh-day Sabbath, and we talked about healthful living last evening. All these things the Seventh-day Adventist Church believes in. It does proclaim the three angels' message. You will notice this whole series has been around the three angels' message, different facets of it, because this is God's last message for the world before Jesus comes to prepare the world. 
It is truly a global church. In fact, there are only two truly global churches today. One is the Roman Catholic Church and the other is the Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you had gone to the the, the Bible, American Bible Society in New York a few years ago, you would have seen a big chart of where all the, the Protestant churches are working in the different nations. The, the second highest was 88 countries. The first one was 200, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Because the Bible says this message must go to everyone. It doesn't mean everyone's going to accept it, but it's got to go to the whole world. Seventh-day Adventist Church and the Church of Rome. It did emerge after 1798. In fact, it was officially founded in 1863. What does it exist for? Bring my children home. That's the reason for the Seventh-day Adventist Church. That's God's whole purpose for it. I love the words of Jesus as we close. I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. I lay down my life for the sheep. Other sheep I have which are not of this fold. When Jesus said those words, he was a Jewish man speaking to Jewish people, and he said, I've got other sheep which are not of this fold. I can almost imagine him thinking, I've got some in the Buddhist faith. i got some in the Hindu faith. i got some in the, well, not the Muslims, because they didn't come along till later on. But he was thinking of his children scattered. And of course, today he would say, I've got them everywhere. But notice what he says. Them I also I must bring. That's why in Revelation he says, come out of my Babylon, my people. They will hear my voice. There will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. This is God's great design that he will bring his people. So he calls in the final pages of the Bible, Come out of her, Babylon, which is everything that is no longer following God. Come out, my people, because I love you. And if you stay, you receive the plagues. That's God's call. I want to share with you. Whoops, how did we get there? Not sure. I want to share with you a story that really uh, moved me when I was a boy. My sister's here my oldest sister, Lynn's here today. She used to keep a, a book of poems. And was, got, I think it got about that fat of all these poems that she kept. And one poem I used to read over and over again. It was the story, in a story, in a poem form, of a father who was a drunk. And this drunk guy used to leave home. He spent all the money, pretty much, as much as he could on grog. And he'd go to the hotel and he'd drink himself silly. His wife had died by this time, and now all that was left were these three or four kids, and the oldest sister would be the one who would look after the kids, her siblings, and go to the hotel and pick that up every night after he's had drinking. So she'd go to the hotel and she'd say, tug on his coat at the, at the bar, he's been there for a while, she said, come along daddy, home is this way. And she'd lead her drunk father through the streets back home to the house. This went on night after night after night. And finally it gets to the winter time. And the little girl, Sally, she is, she is sick. She is, she is really in trouble. Because, you know, they don't have good food. The kids are cold. The father drinks all the money. And so 
she's so sick, but she realizes when she is sick one night, I must go get dad. So she staggers down to the pub, falls and rises, falls and rises, gets to the hotel, tugs on her, on her dad's coat, come along, daddy, home is this way. But her dad hasn't finished drinking yet, and he, and, he, and he yells at poor Sally, get out of here, you little brat. I haven't finished. And of course, the poor kid is reduced to, you know, treated like that. So she goes home, but she staggers and falls, and, and, and she, she staggers, and finally she falls on the front path of the house, and she cannot get up. And there she lies. Some hours later, when Dad's finished at the Pope pub, he comes home, manages to find his way to the house, kicks and swears at something that's lying across the path and goes inside and goes to sleep. Next morning, when he's sobered up some, later in the morning, he comes out and there's his daughter dead on the path. You know, when I thought of that story, I thought, that's a bit like God, isn't it? Come out, my people. He went to enormous cost to bring us out went to Calvary come along guys home is this way and that's the message of God to each one of us today come out my people come out I want to pray together and I'm going to give you a card in fact we'll give the cards out in just a moment but I want to pray together and I want to talk first of all to my Seventh-day Adventist friends just because you belong to the Seventh-day Adventist church does not make you the remnant. I want you to hear that clearly. Just because you go to church on Saturday and even you've been baptized as a Seventh-day Adventist does not make you the remnant. What makes you the remnant is do you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind? Have you put your hand in the hand of Jesus? Because just because you're a Seventh-day Adventist, let me tell you what will happen when the pressure comes on soon. You will give up the faith. You will take the beast mark because you want to buy and sell and so on. You will give up. The only one way that we'll stay true is to cling to Jesus Christ. Love him with all our heart. So I want to appeal to you, my friends, if you're a Seventh-day Adventist here this afternoon, forgive me for saying, but get real, if I can put it that way. Get serious. Because the Lord Jesus is coming and he wants you to be in his kingdom. He wants to use you in his great mission to the world. I want to speak to my friends who belong to other churches. You love God. You're here because God called you here. And God is saying to you, come out, my friend. You cannot stay where you are because to stay, Jesus said, is to participate in sin. And to participate in sin means we receive the plagues. So I want to plead with you to make a decision today. You may not understand everything, but you can say, God, I'm going to follow what you say, and I'm going to seek to find out what this is all about. I want to follow Jesus and come out. I want to plead with you today. But that's before we fill out this card together, I want to pray together. If I can have one of those cards, thanks, gentlemen, as well. That would be great. Okay, let's pray together, shall we? Father in heaven, this is not an easy message to share with people because it sounds a little bit arrogant to the human heart, but Lord, it's your words. It's not my words. You're the one that said, come out, my people, because you've got your kids. Lord, some of your kids have got baptized, but maybe just getting wet like a duck. 
Their hearts haven't really been given to you. They've never trusted in you. They call themselves Seventh-day Adventists because they're, they're part of that movement. But Lord, we need more than that. We need to have a great love for Jesus in our heart. So I pray for my Seventh-day Adventist friends, Lord, that they'll be serious. And they'll say, Lord, here I am. Take my life. Come and take complete control. I want to pray for my friends for other Christian churches that are here, Lord. They wouldn't be here if it hadn't been your plan to have them here. You knew they were ready for this, Lord, or they wouldn't be sitting down here. So help them to make a decision which says, Lord, I'm going to follow you. I don't understand everything necessary right now, but God, I want to know more and I want to follow you. And I want to come out and be part of your great remnant, which you're doing. I want to thank you, Father, that this is an interdenominational movement. That's how it began. And people from all different walks of life are invited to be, to be part of this great prophetic end time movement. Oh, God, hear our prayers. We fill out this card. Please help us to be honest with you. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Countdown Back to the Future, made available by the Victoria Park Seventh-day Adventist Church. For more resources like this, visit their YouTube page, Vic Park SDA Church. From Carly Fletcher's album, Follow the Lamb, this is Knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock If anyone hears my voice And opens the door, I will come into him And dine with him, and he with me I will come into him and dine with
Kids with Uncle Gordon, where you will hear first-hand accounts of answers to prayer and miracles from God. Oh, by the way, I think adults will like this too. G'day children, lovely to be able to talk to you. I'm Uncle Gordon, and uh, I know that you're not really my children or my nephews and nieces, but uh, you'll just call me Uncle Gordon for now. Quite a few years ago, I had the privilege of going to work as a volunteer in Solomon Islands. And I had had some years of tertiary education and then decided it would be nice to go and do something special for somebody else for a year. A couple of weeks into that uh, first year that I was working within the Solomons, I thought I'd like to be doing something special on a Saturday night for the young people. And so I began to tell the people at the church nearby that we were going to have a games evening on the Saturday night. Now, mostly, if you were to have some games and whatever here, you would you would probably go to a hall somewhere where you've got good lights and good cover, but we had nothing like that. All we had was a bit of open space with some trees around the edge. Anyway, it came towards the Saturday night, and it was uh, getting dark, and I'd said to them, we'll start on the Saturday night at about 8 o'clock. And uh, when we got to about half past 7, I began to hear thunder And then I could see lightning flashing and I thought, oh no, we're in for a great big storm. And then I began to wonder how many young people are going to come? How many children and and youth will be there to be able to enjoy this event with me? Because I enjoyed playing active games with uh, children and young people. And then I thought, oh no, we can't have rain because we've got no shelter. And so before going down from my little place where I was staying to run these games and to turn on the lights that I'd set up around the, amongst the trees so we could have lighting, as we were about to go down, I, I then just knelt and just said, Lord, 
These are your young people. They are your children. And we ask that you will please protect and give them a really happy, fun night tonight. Well, then I went down and switched on the lights and I almost fell over with, with uh, well, a bit of excitement but also with fear because it wasn't just the 35 to 50 young ones I thought might be there. There were over 300 young people there. And I thought, how am I going to organise all of these now together? And all I had was a, a whistle and I had the lights all around the place and I had a volleyball net up and volleyballs and a few other volleyballs And uh, so I quickly looked around and saw a few young men who I thought would be good to help organise and so I ended up having about 10 different games going all at once and uh, I'd blow the whistle about every 10 minutes and everybody had moved from whatever game they were into the next game. Partway through the night, I happened to look out to see just what was going on nearby and I noticed that there were people who were standing on the edge of the compound where we were having our games and they were getting wet because it was pouring rain out there. But where I was and where all the young ones were, were playing, there was no rain. And then I noticed that if those ones stepped over a little line that was not marked there on the ground, they didn't get wet, they were dry. All the way through the night, no rain dropped there, but it was apparently pouring everywhere else but where our little games evening was taking place. At the end of the evening, and we went from about 8 o'clock through till nearly midnight, it was a, a real fun night together. And I had a prayer with all those young people at the end of that activity and uh, sent them all home. And, and then I packed up the volleyball net and uh, turned off the lights and went up to my little place. And as I stepped inside, then all of a sudden the rain began to pour down. I then just knelt again and said, thank you, Lord. You have demonstrated to me how important every young person is. Every child is important to you, every young person. And I thank you that I have the joy of being able to work with you in helping them to know Jesus. So young people, children, you are precious to Jesus. He loves you very, very much. And he wants you to be a part of his family forever. God bless you. to Mission Stories for Kids with Uncle Gordon, a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. It's been our pleasure bringing you this program today here on 3ABN Australia Radio.